This is the Find Your Forte podcast, episode 61. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte podcast with choral director and lifestyle entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast, bringing you episode 61 with James Bass. I'm very excited to have him here today. So I got to start with my question, my corny question that I ask everybody before we begin. James, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? I'm so ready, yes. Thank you. Thank you for being ready. Uh, We had a wonderful pre-interview conversation. Uh, So I know a lot about James, and I've learned a lot about James recently, especially um, uh, through his associate, Patrick Quigley, who's been the podcast for the last two weeks. Every every so often, we get somebody who comes in who takes up two weeks of of, of episodes. Uh, So... I don't know. We'll see what happens today, James. But uh, I want to uh, start a little bit by asking you, if I were to meet you randomly out in the world and I didn't know a thing about you and I said, James, what is it that you do? What would you tell me? Wow. Well, the first thing I would tell you is that I absolutely 100% make my living. And I say living meaning uh, in the financial terms and in the emotional, spiritual terms as uh, a musician, as a conductor and singer. Um, I also passionately love sports, but I don't make any money from that. I just spend it on it. But what, what I do and what I am, uh, I, I, I considered my life to now be in three parts, teaching, conducting, and singing. And I want to do all three of those as long as I possibly can. I imagine that the singing part will probably age out faster than the teaching and the conducting. But um, that's who I am. That's what I do. And that should be really encouraging, Choir Nation, because I think many of us got into music education because we loved to sing. And what that brought along uh, in our journey was the teaching and conducting part. So it's very encouraging to hear that you do all three of those things um, to an expert mastery level. And uh, so I'm I'm very encouraged by that, but I want to find out a little bit about your backstory and how you got to this point. So would you just back up and and tell us how you got into singing in the first place? Was it singing first or was it teaching first? It was, it wasn't, it was either, it was neither, excuse me. I was a double bassist when I was a young man, um, middle school and early high school. Uh, playing double bass. And I guess in my brain at that moment, I thought I was going to spend my life sitting on a bar stool in the back of an orchestra playing bass parts. I really thought that's what I would do. And was fortunate enough to go to Interlochen Center for the Arts, the academy, and played in the orchestra there uh, on scholarship. Well, Interlochen, if you know anything about this place, it's an amazing, amazing school. Um, And the academy has about 500 students, 600 students that live there during a full high school year. So you live in dorms. You, essentially, it's like a college life, but in high school. So in my dorm, there are two guys that lived across the hall from me, a set of twins, Ian and Kevin Greenlaw, that were singers. Now I've gone on to have great both of them opera careers. But um, they invited me to join the choir. This is my junior year in high school, and I was not interested at all. I just just thought orchestral music was the way to go, and I, lo- I wanted to be an orchestral conductor and blah, blah, blah. So uh, – 
after enough pressure, the second semester, I joined the choir for, for social reasons, which I'm sure that's not the first time you've ever heard that. So I joined it for social reasons. And then after sitting in a week's worth of rehearsals, there is no doubt in my mind that I that the most passionate music making on that campus was happening in that choral rehearsal hall. And I watched the conductor, uh, a guy named Hugh Floyd, who's now at Furman University. He was our director. And at the time, at the ripe age of 16 years old, I thought that this man was, was just the most brilliant person in the world. There was language. There was poetry. There was inflection. There was balancing to a level that I had never experienced before by just playing a bass in the orchestra. And so it just completely lit a fire that actually was burning simultaneously with my orchestral fire and uh, started to study voice while I was there. People said, oh, you had a nice voice and this, that, and the other. Well, I go from there into undergraduate where I studied bass. I still studied bass, but decided to take up music education with vocal emphasis. So I had an undergraduate, I have an undergraduate degree in music ed um, with vocal emphasis. And over the course of my undergraduate, the double bass slowly waned away mm -hmm. and the vocal part increasingly waxed up to the point that when I was at the end of my undergraduate, I knew there was nothing else I wanted to do in the world but be a choral conductor. It's, it, I, I felt at that point that it was no longer a backseat to being an orchestral conductor or to being a band director, that it was really paramount that the human voice in my mind was the greatest instrument. And so I went from there, got a master's in choral conducting, uh, a doctorate in choral conducting at the University of Miami with Joe Michael Scheibe. He's University of Southern California now. Never heard of him. No, just That's kidding. <laughs> He's episode like 20 or something back on our podcast. So uh, awesome, awesome guy. Wonderful, wonderful man and, and such a great proponent for our, for our art form. Uh, anyway, I went from there and I taught public school, taught elementary school for one year and then public high school for five years. Um, and then after that, entered the university world. Now, simultaneously, I was studying voice the entire time because as a choral conductor and as a teacher of, of singers, I felt like that's just you must continuously upgrade whatever your version of instrument is, mm -hmm. you know, and not every one of us will be the greatest singer, but you can be the greatest singer that you are. But the only way you can do that is if you actually practice and train. Yes, I agree. So I decided to do that uh, simultaneously and was getting some vocal opportunities as soloist and then ensemble singer. So it just so happened that my life kind of bifurcated that I was singing professionally and also teaching professionally as a public school teacher, then entered the, the college ranks, and, uh, and that has brought me to where I am today as a full professor at University of California, Los Angeles. Great story, and you know what? It's it's again, it's so encouraging. And what other what other teachers have the ability to do really really high professional work in their in their trade while also being something like a public school teacher? That's just incredible. I mean, this is it's with such a unique a unique uh, career path here. Um, it's it's challenging in that in that we identify ourselves so closely as a, personally with our profession. There's not, there's not a huge gap between our personal life and our professional life. And I think sometimes that's, that's difficult. Have you ever had any times uh, in your career where um, you were doubting the path that you were on? Um, 
to be honest, I think once I got on the choral conducting and professional education side, I haven't doubted it ever since. I, I think there were some times that I doubted if I wanted to be a double bassist. It's just um, no offense to my double bass brothers and sisters, but it's, it's, you sit in that practice room and you work for hours and hours and a double bass only sounds so great on a, on a major scale. And, and then you get around a singer, even a young singer, an inexperienced singer with what I would, I refer to affectionately in quotes as a baby voice. Mm -hmm. And you hear them sing something like Karo Mio Ben, but you can hear the beauty that's going to be in that voice. And you can see the, you know, the, the, the interest in their brain and okay, how do I make this sound Italian? And when I got on that path, working with singers, I just, I felt like there would never be an end to it. And I'm in the middle of my life and there is no end in sight. Wonderful. So you just said that you're, you're taking over the program at UCLA, which is a pretty popular program, you know, had a, had a very rich history. Um, what what did you, you were at Western Michigan before this, right? So I was at Western Michigan and then University of South Florida in Tampa for six years. Okay, okay. So so what is your what is your goal for UCLA? Because I, I I do feel like geographically, I, I don't know, maybe your goals have to change when you when you're in this area of the world or this area of the world or this is UCLA special for any particular reason because of its geography. Or how are you know and and what are you, what are your goals for UCLA as well? Well, absolutely, there are some geographic um, bonuses to being in a place like LA. LA is the second largest city in America, and filled with arts and museums and people that are interested in culture and so many different cultures coming together at a at a type of a nexus. When you have so many. Asiatic countries that are come into California and the United States through uh, LA and through San Francisco. So it's it's a beautiful melting pot of a place. You have so much energy and and uh, different styles of art consumption in a city like Los Angeles. It also means, in a simple term, that the commodity of singers there are more of them. They're just mm -hmm. around you. You have 14 million people within 10 miles of central Los Angeles. Uh, the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA is a historic school. The building is called the Arnold Schoenberg Hall because Arnold Schoenberg taught there for more than a decade. And so there had been a great influx of the Western European composers that we know. Stravinsky was there for a little bit. Yasha Heifetz was on the campus. Um, Los Angeles essentially was the New York of the West. If you were going to make art music, L.A. and Dorothy Chandler Pavilion became such a famous place for music. Um, so I think that there is at least a historic um, energy about the place that allows you to attract different types of singers. There's no doubt about that. But um, I think for me, my aim has been kind of the same at each of the three universities at which I taught. Western Michigan, which was in a very small Midwestern town, but a fantastic program, great singers. Then moving to Tampa, uh, University of South Florida is an enormous school, 51,000 students in essentially the second largest city in the state of Florida, which is not really a southern state. It's kind of a, um, it's a Caribbean state. So <laughs> and then to move to out west in California, where there actually are some deeper roots and some older uh, veins of art. My aim has been the same at all three of these places. 
and will be the same at UCLA, which is to have fantastically performing vocal ensembles that understand the skill of ensemble singing, like we do in the professional world, like Seraphic Fire and Conspirare and the Kansas City Chorale. I want singers, young singers especially, because I was told the opposite, that you had to train like an opera singer. You had to go to the stage. And after my interview at UCLA, I was actually told something very interesting. After I was hired, they said, you know, James, you said something to our singers that shocked all of us. And I, I, I think I cringed for a second and said, please tell me what it is that I said. I don't remember. And one of the faculty members said, you were coaching the opera course here. And then you had a conversation with them. And you said, okay, so let's say you do all this work and you prepare for the stage and you audition and you don't make it. What are you going to do? You quit now? And I said, I, I want singers to understand that you have an option that if you don't make it to the Met or you don't make it to the Lyric or L.A. Opera, which is such a small percentage of singers, that there are other viable options for you. Some people are wired to be teachers and we want them. I always recommend all students to go and do an undergraduate degree in education. I think it just makes you a better singer, period. You're going to get the same voice lessons anyway. But now that we have groups like, and you know I work with Seraphic and have been with them for 14 years, but groups like Consperare, the Santa Fe Desert Corral, these are places that are paying singers real money and they've been actually paying much, much better of recent that a, a singer with a beautiful voice that may not actually have the voice that you'd want to hear sing Mimi, but could be a, a fantastic ensemble member, which is a totally different set of skills to be able to sing well with others. We hear that statement all the time. So that's been my aim at all of these schools. And, uh, and at UCLA, it certainly will continue. And those are the type of graduate students that I want to attract as well, masters and doctoral level students that uh, are, are in it for more than just to conduct a few works, but really to hone the idea that ensemble singing is its own art. I use an, an analogy all the time um, about what I find beautiful in ensemble singing rather than just solo singing. You know, in nature, when you see that thousand bird flock of little tiny finches and they're flying and they all turn exactly at the same moment, it suddenly goes from being just nature to being art. Because how do they turn instantly together? And you see that and not one of them makes a mistake. I, I get that same image when I hear an amazing choir put an S or a T exactly in the same place and shape a phrase exactly the same way. And those skills have to be taught. They're not just accidental. And so that's, what I, that's my aim at my university programs. What is that, what is that word when, when schools of fish turn together there's 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 a name for this i don't know what it is in the natural world but in the coral world i called it precision but i call it artistic precision there's a yeah there's an there's an actual oh god i wish i knew this word uh i need to somebody needs to google that right now while they're listening to this because it's a great word i learned it recently and i forgot it obviously i didn't learn it but but it, it, it is it is so amazing um that that you're giving these young artists permission to to do to make art regardless of 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 the medium it doesn't have to be that thing that you you don't have to always aim straight for the top because there are so many other opportunities like you're like you said you have these these ensembles that are making real people money 
being choral singers. I mean, and it's not a military ensemble. I mean, what <laughs> exactly? I'm going to get, we're going to get down and dirty here for a second. What, yeah. what can a professional chorister make? You're talking about financially? Well, yeah. What's a going, what is a going rate and what is a, what does a schedule look like as well? Like, so, so let's say, let's say I have teachers listening right now that, that have, that have an interest in singing that, that they, maybe they haven't um, studied uh, really seriously since college, but would be totally willing to go back if they, if, you know, go back and study some more if they knew that they could have this special outlet. And I know you, you're in Santa Fe right now, and the schedule you're you have you're working with Santa Fe Desert Corral would would fit in most at least East Coast teachers' schedules uh, because you're working through August, and most of us don't go back to school until after Labor Day. So that's right. That's exactly right. And for professional teachers that are teaching in the public or private um, grade school age sector, you are obviously, you have this kind of implacable schedule that sometimes goes from either August or somewhere to May, September, I mean, May, uh, June. But there are summer festivals. And you mentioned that I'm I'm currently here singing with the Santa Fe Desert Chorale. This group is 24 singers. We're here for four weeks. And we're going to present 17 concerts in 30 days. Uh, but the Oregon Bach Festival just ended, which is mainly June going into July. And they also hire singers. There are other summer festivals. Most professional choirs certainly do work during the arts season, which is September to May, just like any orchestra, opera, or chorus. For me personally, it's <clears throat> universities look upon uh, this type of uh, contracting as a as tenurable activity. So I get release time to do it, and I always only select those highest level events. But you would be surprised at how many of your public school administrators, if they knew you had an opportunity to go do something really high level, would give you some release time. And if you couldn't do that, obviously you could seek out these summer opportunities. The original question you ask about what people make, obviously it is very different from place to place, but there has become a general standard. Most contracts are one week in length, meaning that you're going to fly in on a Saturday or Sunday, maybe even a Monday morning, and you'll rehearse Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, and then you perform Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you go home, back to your life. Mm-hmm. Or most of these singers do, they go on then to their very next contract in whatever city that is. In each of those situations, most organizations will provide you with a national per diem, which can be anywhere between $35 and $50 a day. And so you'll get that money up front. You'll get a cash or check that says, here's for your meals and food for the week. Some some organizations decide that what they'd rather do is kind of a hybrid. They'll provide certain meals. Maybe they have some supporters or some angels that say, we're going to cook breakfast, we'll do this, and they'll give you a portion of a per diem. You're generally provided travel and lodging and then a salary. What the average has turned out to be is about $1,000 a week in salary, which is actually very comparable to teaching professional school. It's, it's, it, it's a little bit different in the fact that these are what's called 1099 or non-employee contracts. Right. So you have to take care of the taxes on your own, uh, but the money is in your pocket. So it, it averages out if you are only taking cash away about a thousand a week. That's great. I mean, and a, a teacher who does a a three month stint as the 
school uh, musical theater director might only make a couple thousand dollars in a stipend. So I mean, this is this is good money for a teacher. Sure. Now I've heard that there are a small handful of professional singers in <clears throat> the country that that sing in all the the top uh, professional choirs. Is that true? Uh, there is. You certainly see the same faces in many places, okay. and and there's a reason for that, and I understand that. And you you yourself, you're a teacher, you're a conductor. When you get that singer that you work with, that you trust, and you're like, wow, they do everything I ask almost perfectly, and I, I have a relationship with them, meaning a, a conductor-singer relationship with them, that you know you can trust, they're always prepared, if given the opportunity, wouldn't you hire them again? Well, absolutely. So how do, you, how do you break out into the professional choral scene? So Because if you're, you're, you're saying in your... Uh, in your spiel about UCLA and the direction you're going, uh, that there are these opportunities that are available, but the double-edged sword is that many of these conductors already know, like, and trust certain singers. So how do we do we break out uh, the the music educators that want these these positions that are talented enough to get them? How do they get heard? How do they get noticed? Um, and, and are able to, to do this, yeah. That's a valid question. And there, the one nice thing about, and I don't know if it's nice, this is its own double edge, is that when you're singing, there is, you have a shelf life. As a teacher or a conductor, we can go until we drop. But there's going to be some point, unless you're uh, one of the, you know, less than 2% of people that can sing really, really well until their 70s and 80s, you're going to have a shelf life. And so what that means is that there is a natural conveyor belt in these organizations that allows time, young singers to break in. You know, I, I was just thinking about the double bassist in Atlanta. She just recently passed away, and she'd been there for 80 years. Now, how is that even possible? Is, I, I, is that a, I don't know, is she 120 years old? <laughs> well, she died. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm it was 71 years. That's what it was. There's a story. She oh set Lord. the world record for the longest tenure in any orchestra. She started playing with Atlanta Symphony Orchestra when she was like 17. Holy now, cow. So just imagine that base, that seat. No one has been able to get that job for 71 years. In this case, you're talking spans of 10 to 12 years, 12 to 15 years, much shorter. But the way to, get, the way to break in is to increase your skill, your ensemble skill, meaning sing well with others as quickly as you can. And there are some events in which you may have to pay, but I know a few years back, um, Seraphic Fire and University of South Florida hosted an event called the Professional Choral Institute. We brought singers in to sit next to professional singers and work with them for a week and create, Mm -hmm. we actually created a recording of Brahms Requiem, which was nominated for a Grammy. But, what happens is when a professional singer sits next to you or gets to know you, they will recommend you to one of these conductors. Mm-hmm. Because what happens all the time, and I can attest to this, is you take a contract and then something comes up. And you're like, well, I can't do that contract next May. One of the first things that a contractor will ask you is, do you have a voice to replace yourself? Meaning, you know, in my case, a bass two. Do you know another bass two that you recommend? And in our business, in this professional quarrel, if you recommend a bad singer, no one will ever trust you again. So you have to recommend a good singer. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how you kind of break in. And, and, and another way is to just 
you, you literally go out on a limb and you call someone like Craig Hella Johnson or email him and you say, I'm going to be in Austin or hi, I know you're going to be at the ACDA convention in Minneapolis. May I sing for you? And they'll almost every time they'll say, yes, they'll be happy to hear you. And then you go on the roster. You may not get a contract for a bit, but at some point there's going to be some opportunity that allows you to get on a contract. And then if you go there and you do your job, you're going to get invited back. Do you think we need more professional choirs? Uh, yes, but the, the, the need for it is driven by consumption. It's just like a free market society, free market economy. Um, places that want professional choirs will have professional choirs. So what we need are more places that want them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Patrick says this so often. He says, you know, he, people ask him all the time, like, well, I want to start a professional choir. What should I do? And Patrick, one of the first things he says is don't be redundant, meaning look in your geographic region. Is somebody else already doing what you want to do? And if they are, you have one of two choices. Either decide that you're going to try to do it better, which usually doesn't work, or do something different, which usually does work. So maybe they don't have a professional level women's course. Maybe they need a really high level children's choir. So much of this depends on your individual skill set. But this is a true statement, what I'm about to tell you. From the middle to the early to middle 90s to right now, the number of professional choirs in America have almost tripled. It is a trend that is progressing. To me, in my heart, it makes me so happy because it means that the art is being consumed. It's being consumed by ourselves as a community and folks that just want to have an intersection with music. And the great thing about vocal music and vocal ensemble music is you don't need a huge space. You don't necessarily have to bring a loading truck with a bunch of instruments in it. True. And so we're, we're highly portable. We can come to your neighborhood and we can create an experience which changes your entire heart. That's, I think, what makes the, the professional vocal ensemble special. Um, and I, I, I haven't mentioned this yet, but part of my professional uh, manifesto is to also work in the non-professional singer world, m- meaning community choirs. Mm-hmm. And there are some fantastic high-level community choirs. You know many of them. They're all volunteer choruses, symphony choruses around the country. In Tampa, I had the just amazing privilege of working with a group called the Master Crowd of Tampa Bay, 150 completely volunteer singers that sing at a tremendously high level. But it's, it's a different motivation when you're working with a singer that's not getting a paycheck. And I think that part is also important to remember. So what are the major the major um, mistakes that you see made uh, by people that are going after professional choral singing careers? It's inflexibility and so in their singing. Inflexibility in their singing. That's the first thing. The second thing is just being a bad colleague, not being a good human. Um, and I'll, I'll address both of those separately. Um, when we study voice in, in a college level, we usually have a kind of a close relationship with our voice teacher. It's a natural phenomenon. And we often want to imitate our teachers. And our teachers sometimes are teaching us technique that they were taught and that they were taught by their grandparent teacher. And that technique is not necessarily the best for ensemble singing. And, and this, what I'm about to say, can be a controversy to some people. I don't think it is. 
in an ensemble, you're going to be asked many times, you're not singing with vibrato here. Please don't sing with vibrato in this note, this line, this measure, that note. Some vocal teachers will tell you, oh, this is bad. This is not good for your voice and the technique. And that's not true, by the way. And I'll let your listeners, I'll let uh, Choir Nation look up the research on, on vibratoless singing. Um, but if you're in a, in a rehearsal and a conductor says, I really need you to sing without vibrato on this cadential moment, especially in Renaissance music, almost all pre-cadential and cadential moments now we say we sing in a linear fashion without vibrato. If you're unable or unwilling to do that, you're, you're just not going to come back. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is if in a group like Seraphic, let's say, 13 singers, you're the one person that's using vibrato on a spot where the conductor has asked you not to, it is painfully obvious. There's no way to hide it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I love about these modern vocal ensembles, groups like Charles Bruffy's groups and Craig's groups, you as a singer, you're asked to sing from that kind of linear, straight tone style all the way up to whatever your most robust bel canto Mozart type voice is. It means that you have had good training and that your voice is incredibly flexible. Um, and I, I want to believe that that is the new modern American singer, which makes me very proud of us as a nation of singers, is that we can do, we can sing from Bach to, to Bruckner and use all the colors that are required. That's the first mistake the singers make is the inflexibility. The other one is what I said about not being a good colleague. When you're in a one-week contract and you're expected to come in and you have literally 30 hours to prepare a 90-minute concert in which people are paying $50 a ticket, you better be prepared when you get there. And if you're not, that's not being a colleague because what it does is it puts stress on the singer around you. If there's only three people in your section and you're, you're not really that prepared, now you put a lot of onus on the other two. Also, being supportive when people have a vocal issue, health issues, sometimes the singing. So those, if you get a reputation of just not being very friendly, you're also not coming back. It's, it's a beautiful community of people that happen to sing. And so it, I always say, first, it starts with being a good person, and then you got to be a good singer. So I have a question for the music educators out there that have been, they've been teaching for a long time. Maybe they haven't been nourishing their ensemble skills, but they, they'd like to get back into it. Um, I know one of the things that, that always you know, makes me super insecure, even though I think I'm pretty darn good at it is, is sight singing and, you know, what kind of skill set you need to have in the sight singing world to be able to, to hop into a a professional choral ensemble. Um, especially, you know, after, you know, five, 10 years of teaching middle school, high school, where you're not necessarily challenged to, 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 you know, flex that muscle regularly, um, can you speak a little bit about those musicianship requirements for a, a high-level ensemble? Yes. And, and remember, to each person, we have our own gifts. But it doesn't mean that you can't get to the same finish line. I know that was kind of a very strange allegory. But it is not that often, actually, in our professional choral world or even in a, a community chorus world that we're actually forced to sight-read or sight-sing uh, in a concert type setting. I mean, usually if that happens, there's been some disorganization by the conductor and you should, should not do that. But what it means is that everybody has to be truthful and honest about their own ability. So for example, 
if I gave you a piece of music on Monday and I said, hey, we're going to have our first rehearsal on Wednesday, and let's say I have the same piece of music on Monday, depending on our levels, some people can take that piece, look at it 30 minutes, and they can sing that rehearsal perfectly on Wednesday. Some people, they need more time. They just need more passes at it. Ultimately, you're responsible for that decision. If you say, you know what, I'm just, I don't sing fourths and fifths as easily as this singer next to me, I'm going to have to spend an hour and a half on that same music. The, that part, I always think the singer, if the singer is truthful with themselves, they can get themselves prepared exactly to the same level. It just may mean that they have to do more than another singer. Don't resent the other singer because there's somewhere and some level of your performing that you're going to be better than them. That's the truth. Everybody has something that we're the best at. It just depends on your own skill set. For me personally, if I'm terrible at memorizing, if you put the music in front of me, two passes, I'm going to be fine. But if you ask me to memorize it, it's going to take me 30 passes on the music. And some people I know are the exact opposite. They can read it twice and then music's gone and memorized. And I'm always incredibly jealous of those singers. But it, it, you can equalize yourself with what you consider a great ensemble skill singer. Um, and sight singing, you know, we know all different types of ways that we teach sight singing in middle school and in high school. And I know for me personally, Interlock, and we were taught fixed do solfeggio, which I still think in my mind is the best way to go. But uh, that's a whole different episode, James. That's a, <laughs> so we talk about European versus, yes, yes, exactly. But you know how you get better at sight reading? You sing and you listen. That's how you get better. Mm-hmm. And so if you're teaching all the time, which we do so often when we're in the trenches, I call it, of, of public school teaching, which is literally the most important job in this country, by the way. But the only way you get better at it is by just doing it. And so if you don't put yourself in an environment which you're like, well, I just got a, I just got a motet and I'm going to sing it, then you don't really get better. Mm-hmm. You've got to just do it. And one of the things that I, I, I have had complaints about in the past, especially with my graduate students, I'll often ask them in their first or second session with me, what are you listening to? What do you have right now on your iPhone? <clears throat> in your, what, what are you listening to? And invariably they'll go, uh, uh, e-, and they'll tell me a couple popular singers, which is fine. I like all types of music. But I'll say, what choirs are you listening to? And they can't even name two. If you want to be a great choral conductor or a great choral singer and you don't even listen to the art in which you aim to produce – that does that's a disconnect Mm -hmm. if you want to be a great singer listen to great choirs because you'll end up imitating them so we have an entire cadre of amazing choirs in this country now that are producing recordings and if you don't own any of them you're probably not that serious about it and you have spotify so you have no excuse because they're all on there too so there's an infinite ways to get whatever you need yeah that's the first place I go. That's the first place I go when I'm looking for for repertoire ideas and or just some inspiration or I want to, you know, know, you know, just hear good choral singing. I go straight to Spotify and start looking up all the pro choirs that I know and start listening to their to their albums. You know, uh, you and I had a conversation uh, in, at Chorus America about the um, the Monteverdi Vespers recording from Seraphic Fire and like what that. Did and that was your way. It was Traffic Fire and and your your ensemble at 
at Western, uh, Michigan. Western Michigan. Yes, that's right. And uh, it was so cool, you know, that I'm like, oh, here I am. And I had no idea that it was even you I was talking to at the time, I think, because uh, Patrick had just mentioned your name to me and I hadn't put the face and the name together. And we were just sort of randomly walking together at, at, at Chorus America. And then we ended up having uh, dinner and drinks with, with the audio engineer from that recording. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad that, you know, that I was literally cleaning my sock drawer and ironing one night listening to this, this version of, um, of the, you know, the, the Monteverdi Vespers. And I listened to it like twice. Like I just found more socks to, to, to clean up and more things to iron just to have an excuse to listen to that recording over and over again. And, um, and I have to say, every time I, I make the decision to go on and, and just listen to, to uh, other choirs, I'm, I'm more and more inspired. I, I get back in front of my choir and I do better things. So I would, yes, wholeheartedly recommend to Choir Nation that you go out there and you, uh, you listen, listen to some you know, high-level singing. James, what are, what are your go-to choirs? I mean, I know there's a little bit of bias, but I mean, what are your go-to choirs uh, that people should go and listen to on, on Spotify or iTunes or go buy recordings of? Before I answer that, can I say one thing about that Monteverdi recording? Yeah, yeah, go for it. That, as you know, I think from you, uh, a previous podcast, you have a Kyle Karam who uh, was on that recording. It was a combination of the Western Michigan University Choir, which was mainly undergraduates. I think there was only three graduate students in that choir. And then a, a collaborative project with Seraphic Fire in which we aimed to try to create exactly what you and I were talking about earlier, this environment where young singers can experience ensemble skills and understand what that means in a professional level. From that group of singers, five of them are now major professional singers and ensembles. Uh, Patrick Mulize sings with Tucson Chamber Artist, which is now called True Concord. He's here uh, with Santa Fe this week. Uh, Logan Shields and Andy Van Alsberg sing in Sh- uh, Chanticleer. They're two of the newest singers in Chanticleer. And Blake Morgan sings with Voches 8 in London. And so those singers didn't even know what a professional choir was until that project. And now they're singing with some of the biggest choirs in the world. It just makes me so proud as a teacher. But um, all right, so you've asked about the choirs that I listen to. <clears throat> Obviously, with Seraphic Fire, we get to hear each other a lot. And I certainly go back to some of our recordings for even when I'm teaching choral literature, just because we do a lot of early music. Gekunga um, Kantarai, if you want to hear kind of the first set of historically informed performances, but on modern instruments of Bach, then of course the helmet reeling recordings and that entire collection of recordings are, are important. Many people will tell you that there are some better recordings. Um, uh, one of my favorite Bach groups is the Amsterdam Baroque soloists, Tom Kopman. And if you get any of the Amsterdam Baroque soloist recording, you're going to completely fall in love with it, no doubt. Uh, Voses 8 in London. They're putting out a bunch of new recordings. They just came out with a hybrid recording of Ola Yelo works. I think it was just released maybe a month ago. Yep. Um, but they have some really, really, really great stuff. Obviously, in America, the Kansas City and Phoenix Chorale, their combined recordings and individual subset of recordings are all spectacular. And Charles Bruffy, I know, has been a guest on uh, Finding Your Forte. And he's. And so is Helmet Rilling, by the way. So, because I know you mentioned him before as well. 
So go back and oh yeah, man. Listen, I'm a straight up baller, okay, James. <laughs> Just I I know no no limits on who to reach out to, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the, the people you're rattling off and <clears throat> go back through my catalog and, and listen to the, listen to the, the university recordings, I'm sure of, of all those people. Um, I'm sure that would be a, another wealth of, of, uh, of recordings for, for choir nation to listen to. Yeah. Let me, let me give you one college that a lot of people don't talk about, but they are one of the best college choirs in the country. And that's Louisville. Kent Hatterberg is the conductor at Louisville. And they have a set of recordings out, but um, some of the best college singing in America is at Louisville. Really, Kentucky, yes. Kentucky. I won't. I won't hold that against them. And they don't um, have the accent or anything, too. No, and I think Kent. Uh, I I don't know his bio from memory, but he did a lot of his training in Germany, so he comes with a, with a kind of a European informed style, which automatically makes the choir a little bit more flexible because they sing often without vibrato. Awesome, but never would have known that. Well, certainly go, certainly go check that out. Wonderful. Well, James, you know we're we're, we're coming up on time, and I I want to say that I, I really appreciate you taking the time um, to be here with Choir Nation for this interview. And I'm sure I have not heard the last of James Bass, and I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll be with us in the future. And um, I want to make sure that Choir Nation knows uh, to check out. Uh, James's show notes at um, ryanguth.com forward slash 061 for episode 61, uh, where uh, you can, he, they, Choir Nation can get um, some relevant links to the things that we spoke about today. Um, I do want to ask you before you leave, um, what's one book that you would recommend to Choir Nation? That, what's the one that maybe you give as a gift or the one that changed your, the way you think? <clears throat> Well, not about music, right? Anything. There could be anything. I recently read a book called Savage Continent. And uh, for some reason, I can't remember the author's name. I would, I would grab it. But Savage Continent is about Europe after World War II, about the 10 years after World War II. And it puts into perspective base humanness. And after I read that book uh, and – realized how privileged my life has been of not really having many trials and hardships like that generation of people had. It just makes your music making just deeper. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. you. Uh, James, where can we find out more about what you're up to online? I have a website, which is at jameskbass.com. And if you visit uh, seraphicfire.org, actually seraphicfire.com, then uh, my bio and some information is there, our calendar, Seraphic Fire. I do sing with lots of groups, but obviously that's there. And uh, in 2017, 18, I take over a group called the Long Beach Camerata Singers in Long Beach, California, and uh, I'll be on their website soon. Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you, James. You've certainly helped us to step up to the podium with purpose today. And thank you for being my guest on the Find Your Forte podcast. Thank you. All right, Choir Nation, thank you so much for listening to the Find Your Forte podcast today. As always, check us out on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. That is where I collect money for what I do because I like to think that I'm doing something valuable. And if you believe that I am also doing something valuable for the choral world, uh, you can set up 
as little as $8 a month uh, on Patreon to help me with the costs associated with this podcast. Uh, and we even have a feature spot at $4 an episode. You become a executive producer of the Find Your Forte podcast. I send you a business card template and you can brag about uh, your being a executive producer for the Find Your Forte podcast at conventions and all this sort of stuff. So if you see me speak at a convention, you can be like, what up, bro? I am an executive producer. And I'll be like, I know because you're awesome and I only have a few of those people. And I put all my executive producers in a closed Facebook group, a secret private Facebook group, uh, so that uh, they can be awesome together, help each other out, uh, and, uh, and and whatnot. So uh, head on to patreon.com forward slash find your forte to check out those options. Also on Facebook, join the Choir Nation Facebook group if you love the podcast. You can uh, interact with some awesome, awesome, positive choral people at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash choir nation. We have over 600 people to date in that group, and they are positive and awesome, and they're helping each other every single day. And you can also uh, commune with me over there on that Facebook group as well. So thank you so much for listening to the Find Your Forte podcast, and we will see you on the flip side. Take care. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing.